My name is Ed Goldberg. Welcome to Author, Author, an occasional series of conversations with authors touring through Portland or whom I have reached by phone. My name is Ed Goldberg, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Tom Hartman. Tom, welcome to All Classical. Thank you, Ed. It's an honor to be here. Uh, it's an honor to have you. Now, uh, before we get started on your book, which is a big, big, long title, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America, who's the publisher on this? BK. BK Publishing. Yeah, and uh, your name is T-H-O-M, Tom, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N. Writing is not all that you do, although you've done quite a lot of writing in your career. Uh, you have a long history as a radio host, a talk radio host. Yeah, yeah. And when radio in general, I started when I was 16. I was a the weekend guy for Country Western Station in Lansing, Michigan. And I did that. I did I did DJ stuff for three years, and then I did news for seven years. Uh-huh. And then we started the show that I'm doing now about 16 years ago. And you used to be on KPOJ, which was an Air America station, the late right. lamented Air America network, right? Yeah, and I, and I was on Air America nationally. I understand there's still some version of Air America out there. Is that true? Arguably, yeah. I, I'm part of a, a lineup. I mean, there's there's still a bunch of us who are doing progressive talk radio, and there's still a bunch of stations carrying us uh, from early in the morning till till late at night. So there's some good talent out there. Stephanie Miller and uh-huh. and uh, she's funny. Yeah, I really like she's, her. She's, and she's William Miller's daughter. That's hilarious. Yeah, former yeah. you know Barry Goldwater's vice presidential candidate. Oh, those were the days. Yeah. Okay. Now uh, this book is about the Supreme Court. This book is about the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America. But I was thinking today, I'm old enough to remember the billboards that said impeach Earl Warren. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Me too. And the thing about the Supreme Court, uh, I think that anybody who knows a little bit about it, the idea is that you think, well, it's a cycle. You know, it's a pendulum that swings back and forth. And every now and then you get a guy like Earl Warren, who was a reliably conservative governor of California, who became who became the, the chief justice of the most liberal court in my lifetime, I mm-hmm. think. And then you got guys like David Souter, who was another reliable conservative, who became a liberal on the court. So isn't isn't aren't we just experiencing one of those pendulum swings? No, we're not. The court has been heavily politicized, as a, largely as a consequence of the Powell Doctrine in or the Powell Memo in 1971. Lewis Powell wrote this memo to his next door neighbor Eugene Sindor, the head of the uh, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, saying, you know. We've got to we've got to push back. Ralph Nader and Rachel Carson are going to destroy America. He named them actually in the memo. And one of the things that he suggested, in addition to taking over the universities, taking over high school textbooks, taking over politics, of course, was we need to establish control of the judiciary. And that led to the funding of the of the Federalist Society, which is now feeding. I mean, Donald Trump has now appointed more more federal court judges than any other president in history. Yes. Okay. And this is a very intentional plan that they've been executing for about aggressively for about 20, 25 years. And doing a great job of it. Yes. They, yeah. The stealing the march, I believe, is the cliche <laughs> that applies here. They're, yeah. They are they're taking taking things over, which some people, of course, might not think is a bad idea. I mean, I have Facebook friends and friends in real life who think, uh, well, you know, this is the, the country's really too liberal and we're, we're becoming socialists. And mm-hmm. and thanks to the Supreme Court, maybe, and, and the, the lower court judges, Maybe this won't be such a, a, a snowball effect. Uh, have, do you have an idea about that? I think it's going to be – I think it's going to get really bad. Right now, one of the few things that stands between some of the most egregious decisions that are being made uh, in the White House, for example, putting children in cages indefinitely. We know the kind of damage that even one day uh, – imprisoning a child for even one day can do. 
Um, the Trump administration last week argued in a federal court that they should be able to keep children in cages indefinitely, who, who have committed no crime whatsoever and whose parents have committed the crime of asking for asylum here in the United States. It was a federal court judge who said no. Actually, it was a, I believe it was a three to two decision, mm-hmm. two to three, it was two a to panel. one decision, yeah. three, yeah. yeah. And which tells you that there's, you know, one judge who thinks, oh, that's just fine. I mean, it's, and there's more coming. There's a lot more coming. Okay, now, the, uh, this is not a case you cited in your book, but I remember this from who knows when, high school, when we actually used to learn something in high school. Yeah. Uh, the, it was Andrew Jackson in a case known as Worcester versus Georgia in 1832, and he said, John Marshall has made his damn decision, now let him enforce it. Oh, it is in the book. It is in the book? How yeah. did I miss that? I'm well, sorry. Well, I, I don't refer to it as Worcester v. Georgia. I refer to it as the Trail of Tears case. Oh, tra- oh yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, the meaning of that is that the, the the judiciary has one function and the executive has the function of making sure that the laws are faithfully executed and the Supreme Court, in effect, makes law when they when they have decisions. And But Andrew Jackson said, screw it, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, he did that twice, actually. He did that with the Trail of Tears, and, uh, which really was uh, most of the execution that was in the administration following his but also with the the Second National Bank. Mm-hmm. Same thing. The Supreme Court said that bank is totally constitutional, and he said, I'm taking it down anyway. And and the other president who did this was uh, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln said, I am not going to, I mean, this is not literally what he said, but, you know, <laughs> fighting the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, he said, I am not going to honor Roger Tawney, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in 1856. I'm not going to honor his Dred Scott decision. We're not going to enforce that. Why do we have a Supreme Court? Well, the Supreme Court was originally conceptualized, and, it, and it's fairly clear, it's well-defined in the Constitution for, for a couple of purposes. The principal one was to be a court of final appeals. If you sue me and, and you win, and then I decide I don't like that, and I appeal it to another court, and then I win, and then you, and we go back and forth and back and forth, eventually the buck's got to stop someplace. So the Supreme Court is the place where the buck stops, the final court of appeals. Article 3 uh, also defines the Supreme Court, Article 3, Section 2, as having uh, that's appellate jurisdiction, so those things all have to start in other courts. But they have primary jurisdiction in in battles between the states, and in battles between the United States and other governments, and in some cases with regard to maritime law. You did mention Marbury versus Madison. Now right. this is uh, possibly the single most the consequential. One, the, thank you. That's the word I'm groping for. The single most consequential decision of the Supreme Court is that they have the right to to take a look at laws and decide whether they're constitutional or not. They have the right to examine decisions from Correct. lower courts and say whether it's constitutional or not. A lot of people now are saying uh, that was wrongly decided. Well, there's, the, the, it's been a debate from the beginning. I mean, if, if, you, if you read Hamilton's uh, commentaries in the, in the Federalist Papers on the, on the courts, at one point he strongly argues against judicial review, this, the, the ability of a court to strike down a law. Elsewhere, he argues in favor of it. But broadly speaking, he said, you know, the courts, the judiciary will be the least likely to offend. It's the weakest of the three branches. They don't have the power of the purse, which is the legislative. They don't have the power of the sword, which is the executive. And up until 1803, the Supreme Court was basically, uh, some people even referred to it as the dogs and chickens court because America was so agricultural and, you know, somebody's dog would eat somebody else's chickens and it would end up in the courts and it would literally go all the way to the Supreme Who's Court. Whose ox is gored. Exactly. Probably, yeah. Exactly. But in 1803, um, in the case of Marbury versus Madison, uh, without going into all the details of the case, uh, 
John Marshall, who had been put on the court the day that John Adams left office in, in uh, 1801, in March of 1801. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson uh, ended up hating each other after the, after the passage of the Alien Sedition Act in, in uh, 1798. Jefferson refused to speak to him basically again until much later when they started corresponding. And Jefferson beat Adams, and, and as a parting screw you to Jefferson, Adams put Jefferson's third cousin and bitterest political enemy, high federalist John Marshall, on the court and made him uh, chief justice. And so anyhow, Marshall in 1803 says he strikes down part of the Judiciary Act of 1797 and says— Somebody has to say what the law means, and the Constitution is the ultimate law. And so that has to be the filter through which we interpret all other law that is made. Jefferson freaked out. He wrote a series of letters, which I reprint in the book. He said, if this decision stands, then our Constitution has become a suicide pact. Under this construction, our Constitution has become a thing of wax to be molded in the hands of the the judiciary. He said that, this decision, if it stands, turns the Supreme Court into the most despotic branch. He argued that basically under, under judicial review, we were no longer a constitutional democracy, that we were a constitutional monarchy where you had, you know, seven, ten, or nine, it's varied over the years, appointed, not elected judges deciding what the law was, striking down laws, and in some cases actually writing laws, and that that's not small-d democracy. It's, it's interesting to watch the ebb and flow of this. Uh, Phyllis Schlafly, the grand opponent of Roe v. Wade and, and you know, right-wing. Doyen. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, she would come on my program a couple times a year and we would talk about this. I mean, she had a really keen legal mind. She just passed away last year. And this was one of the few things. I mean, we would have knockdown, drag-out battles about politics and law. But this was one of the things where we agreed. It made for a fascinating conversation. But, you know, the, the objection of conservatives to judicial review goes back principally to Brown v. Board in 54 and Roe v. Wade in 73. The objection of liberals to judicial review is just now in this generation starting to come up again with the evisceration of the Civil Rights Act, for example, and, you know, this whole spectrum of other egregious decisions that the, that the court has made. But it has gone back and forth with a political subtext. You know, who hates and who loves judicial review, literally all the way back to the Marbury decision. One of the things that I think about a lot when I think about the court and, and our current situation is originalism. I think originalism is a doctrine which is undefensible. I think originalism is silly. I think that when people talk about originalism, I say, well, oh, really? What did the founding fathers have to say about television? What do the founding fathers have to say about an AR-15? What do the founding fathers... I mean, I, I can run, run a whole list of, of modern things that were inconceivable in the time of the founding fathers and that my view of the Constitution is that it's malleable and it's supposed to evolve with the times. Otherwise, it's a useless... It's, it's carved in stone and it's useless. Do you, can you, do you, well, what do you have to say about that? Originalism is a scam. It was, <laughs> it was tried out during Reconstruction by a couple, of, uh, a couple of judges, usually with the argument that, well, my great-grandfather was alive back then or my grandfather knew Thomas Jefferson or you know, I, that kind of thing. But nobody ever really took it seriously. It was revived in the modern era by Robert Bork, 
and intentionally is a scam. And basically, and now we have five guys on the court who all claim to be originalists. And basically what they're saying is that we know what the founders thought so well, so comprehensively, so deeply, so thoroughly that we could, we could apply that to modern things like television using their thought processes. This is not unlike Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson sitting on, on television the day after 9-11 saying, we know the mind of God, we know what God intended, and God let 9-11 happen because we have homosexuality and feminism. In the Whenever anybody tells you that they know what God knows or thinks or that they know what the founders thought, run in the other direction. I mean, you just, you just read the Federalist Papers, read, read Madison's notes on the Constitution. There was no consensus on anything. Right. I mean, the founders were all over the map, and, and the framers were all over the map, and the early courts were all over the map, and even individuals. Thomas Jefferson was on both sides, sometimes four or five sides, of the same issue at different points in his life. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's just a scam. I'd like to remind our listeners that I'm speaking with Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman is the author of uh, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and Betrayal of America, published by BK. Where can we get your book, Tom? Uh, it goes on sale on October 1st. So That would be tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm dating. the. I probably yeah. shouldn't date the interview, but there you go. In bookstores everywhere? Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and on all the online places, too. Okay. Is it ever a useful idea to try to debate originalism with an originalist? Well, and no, it's like trying to debate the mind of God with a literalist. Um, I would like to just close a loop that we opened sure, a little sure. earlier, Ed, if it's okay with you. Absolutely. We were talking about judicial review, and I believe it was George Mason. I'd have to go back and read my own book, but somebody wrote, uh, somebody who was a friend of Jefferson's uh, after he just went nuts about the Marbury decision, wrote him a letter saying, well, okay, if you don't think that the Supreme Court should have the final say on what the law is, what is and isn't constitutional, then who should? I mean, somebody's got the buck's got to stop somewhere with regard to that, doesn't it? And Jefferson said yes, uh, and he, he was like, "Okay, who is it?" And Jefferson was like, "The people themselves." And in fact, Larry Kramer, who was the dean of the Stanford Law School, wrote a brilliant book called "The People Themselves," which is a critique of judicial review, and it's that phrase from Jefferson, and. This has, you know, very much been the case. So if you, if you look at history that we have, you know, for example, people say one of the biggest arguments in favor of judicial review that people try to throw at me is, well, you know, what if Congress passed a law saying that if you criticize the president, you went to prison? You know, shouldn't the Supreme Court be there to protect your First Amendment right? And, and I'm like, well, Congress actually did pass that law. They passed it in 1798. It was called the Sedition Act, right? It it was the thing that, that, you know, got Jefferson so angry with Adams that they broke their friendship. Uh, Jefferson left town the day that it was signed law. Wouldn't sit with Adams after that. And what happened was in the election of 1800, the American people, and and using the Alien Sedition Act, I mean, the day he signed it, Adams put Ben Franklin's grandson, Benjamin Franklin Bach, who published a newspaper called The Aurora in Massachusetts, put him in prison. And what he put him in prison for was an op-ed in which Benjamin Franklin Bach said that President Adams is old, toothless, querulous, and balding. That's a verbatim quote. And for that, he was put in prison for over a year, lost his newspaper, lost everything. So thin-skinned presidents are not a new thing. Exactly. But it wasn't the court that rescued us from that. 
it was the people themselves. They voted Adams out. They voted Jefferson in. First thing he did was grant a pardon to all these newspaper publishers. The law expired on the day that he became president. It obviously was not renewed, at least until the presidency of Woodrow Wilson in World War I, which is a whole other story. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is either you believe in democracy or you believe in a constitutional monarchy. Because and, and even some of the constitutional monarchies of Europe no longer have judicial review or, you know, basically a court that does that or a monarch who is capable of striking down laws. But that's basically the argument that people who are aggressively in favor of judicial review, and I, I could argue either side of this, uh, but the people who are aggressively in favor of judicial review are essentially making a monarchist argument. You can't trust the people. The people are uninformed. The people are the rabble, as John Adams used to call So is democracy mob rule? Is that what the idea is? Exactly. That's, that's, that's the, one of their favorite phrases. And in fact, that's, you know, the libertarians love to use that phrase. They don't believe in democracy. They, they will tell you right up front, democracy is a bad thing because it is mob rule. And somebody's got to protect the rights of minorities. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's all true. But at the end of the day, do you believe in democracy? Or, you know, as John Locke did, or like Thomas Hobbes, you know, who preceded him by about 50, 60 years, you know, with Leviathan, do you believe that humans are so inherently flawed that we have to look around and find the few really good people among us and give them the power to veto or push pretty much anything? And that leads you right to Calvinism, the, the theory that, you know, John Calvin said, okay, you know, people are flawed because we're all born from women and the Bible tells us, therefore, we all have original sin. So how do we know who are the people that God wants to rule us? And Calvin's answer to that was, well, obviously they're the rich ones because God made them rich, so we should put the rich people in charge of everything. And this whole argument in favor of, of judicial review is really a variation on that argument. I have to defend Thomas Hobbes just a little bit, okay? Oh, he founded modern liberalism as well as modern conservatism. Yeah. But that quote that it's often thrown at people is that, that life is solitary, poor, brutish, nasty, and short. It's preceded by no arts, no letters, no mission. No yeah, yeah. Well, he was talking specifically about primitive life, about people walking around in loincloths. Uh, at, at, you know, the, the typical English arrogance about God as an Englishman, that, that kind right. of a thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he was wrong about that, too, because I studied anthropology. And we yeah, as Jean-Jacques Rousseau pointed out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so that, that, that primitive life is often beautiful, yes. and there are arts, and there, are, there, are, there is love, and people are buried with flowers, you know. Yeah. So, so Hobbes was wrong about that as well. Yeah. But as long as we're talking about huge outsized personalities, the, when it— I first discovered, not through your book, but your, your book filled in a lot of stuff, Lewis Powell. Lewis Powell mm -hmm. looks like a, a scoutmaster, a librarian. He looks like the, the like butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. He looks like the sweetest, nicest old mm -hmm. man. He wound up on the Supreme Court. That guy had quite a mind, didn't he? He did. He had, a, he had a keen legal mind. He spoke very, very softly. People would lean forward to listen to him. He had a, a thick Southern Like Southern role. Bells. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. he, he lived in, I believe it was Richmond, Virginia, yep. and, and pr pretty much represented rich people and tobacco interests. And Nixon asked him twice to be on the court. He, this is the first time he turned him down. But his memo, probably more than any one single thing in my lifetime, this was in 1971 that he wrote that, altered the, the fate and future, not just of the United States, but I, I would say the entire world, as all these other countries since 1980 have been following the neoliberal ex experiment that Reagan put us on and that Thatcher put the UK on two years earlier. Tell us a little bit about Robert Bork. Now, he, he gave a, a, a concept and a phraseology to the English language mm. about getting Borked. I know, yeah. I'm sure you'll talk about that also. But 
one hates to make judgments about people by the way they look. But when I watched the Bork hearings, I said, I don't want this guy anywhere near the levers of any power anywhere. I don't want him running a Lionel train set. Mm-hmm. And when it was the most arrogant hearing I've ever seen for somebody who wants a job yeah. that I, the, I mean, until we, until Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm writing a book, uh, the fourth one in the series, The Hidden History of Monopoly and the Destruction of Capitalism in Society. And Bork was the one who came up with the doctrine that is currently adopted with regard to monopoly that the only thing that's important is consumer pricing. And so I was reading uh, for the very first time uh, a few months ago Robert Bork's book, The Paradox of, of Antitrust. Paradox the anti- of Antitrust. The, the Antitrust Paradox yeah, is the title okay. of his book. It cost me 200 bucks to get one. They're, they're way out of print. But almost every other page he's congratulating his own brilliance. I mean, literally, you know, <laughs> as I as I speculated back twelve years ago, and and, and quite 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 quite, and then I was proven right. Yeah, yeah no you surprise. Know, you know what Abe Lincoln <laughs> said about about faces? You know, there, he he made a comment about one of his uh, generals, and I forget who it was who who pushed back on him. I, I read this when I was a kid in um, uh, not Whitman, who wrote the biography of Lincoln. Anyway, um, and, and Carl Sandburg. Yeah, Sandburg. Yeah, Sandburg's biography. It's in there. And Lincoln said, I don't like his face. And the guy said, but he was born with that. Isn't that, that's not, that's not a fair judgment. And Lincoln said, no, you're born with a face you're born with. By the time you get to be his age, you've made your face. Yes, that's a great quote. It's attributed to other people also, but I've I've always believed that. Let's switch a little bit. I want to talk about property rights and human rights Mm -hmm. and where you see the court on that continuum. Yeah. Well, first of all, in the frame of, of this book, one of the larger points that I, I, I hope I make well is that at the founding of our republic and at the conception of the Constitution and the Supreme Court, the hot new things were property rights and human rights, those two things. And human rights in a way going back to the Magna Carta, but in reality the Magna Carta was written of, by, and for the very, very wealthy. That's and nobility, yeah. Yeah, nobility, exactly. And, and, and property rights as well. And so, you know, through this entire feudal period of, of European history, average people literally did not have the right to own things. You didn't own your own clothing. You didn't own your house. You didn't own your tools. You didn't own your underwear. You know, the right of the first night, you literally had, had secondary rights to your wife or your husband, you know, depending on what the king wanted. To what the seigneur? Say it again. To what the seigneur? I, you haven't heard that. That's that's where the the Lord Liege, if you are one of his serfs, has the right to deflower your wife the night before your wedding. Ah, yeah. That's the right of the first night. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, that, is that French? Uh, uh, may we? <laughs> okay. <laughs> one, I can I can get around in German, but French well, is— Well, yeah. you know, the, the, of course, the, the English nobility for a long time was very French uh, yes. after 1066 and all yeah. that. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm after, sorry. After the Norman invasion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So anyhow, these were the hot new things. And, and Locke, you know, I mean, this is uh, what in particular came out of the Enlightenment, you know, which in a way was kicked off by Hobbes and then modified by Rousseau and then finally nailed down by Locke in, in the 1670s. with his two treatises on government was the idea. In fact, he uses the phrase life, you know, men are endowed with the rights to life, liberty and private property. And so women still did not have the right to own private property. In fact, they didn't in the United States in a big way, in a, in a consequential way until the 1970s. 
1973, I had to co-sign for my wife to get a credit card because she was a woman. And, and people of color didn't have rights. And I mean, there was all these circumscription, all the, uh, the, the right to property was, is, to this day, actually, is still circumscribed in, in some serious ways. But these were the hot new things, human rights and property rights. And so the majority of the Constitution really deals with property rights. That's really what most of it's all about. And then, of course, the amendments, the first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights deals with human rights. But at that time that it was being written, nobody was considering the rights of the environment. Nobody even understood the biosphere. It, it was an alien concept. You know, the rivers were limitless. You could pour unending amounts of waste into them and they would just simply vanish. And the, and the oceans were filled with fish and everything. I mean, and the salmon runs here in the Pacific Northwest. Lewis and Clark described it as being so intense you could virtually walk from one side of the Columbia River to the other or to some of the rivers. I, I forget which one. Maybe it was the snake. One of, the, one of these rivers. On the backs of the salmon, you know. So now we live in a world where this little blue marble is, you know, we're consuming half of all the fresh water on the planet every year. We're consuming more than 60% of the net primary productivity, the photosynthetic productivity of all plant life on, on Earth or at least on land. And we need a new set of rules. And the Constitution is essentially the rule book for our democracy. And as long as we continue adjudicating decisions, and I get into this in, my, in the chapter on the Giuliano decision, which is a, a first shot at changing this in a positive way. I so said the, the kids who have uh, started a court case about don't screw up our world. That's right. Yeah. Don't steal our future. Yeah. Until the Giuliano case in any real way, and it's, you know, it's before the Ninth Circuit right now. Before that, the courts really never recognized the rights of nature in any consequential way. And, and we need to reconcile that. We need to do it quickly. Okay. Uh, we really only have a couple of minutes left. I'm, it's just almost like sandbagging you with this. But what are the remedies? I think that there's a number of remedies. There's a chapter in the book called in, in case – at the very end called In Case of Emergency Break Glass. Congress has a power that they have never uh, used in a big way. It's been used a few times in small ways but never, never consequentially. Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution says that the Supreme Court shall operate under regulations established by Congress. That's typically interpreted when they meet, how many members they have, where they meet. Congress comes up with their budget. But also under exceptions defined by Congress, which means that Congress can literally pass a law saying we are now asserting that money is not the same thing as speech, which is what the court – the reverse of what the court decided in 76 in the Buckley case. Mm -hmm. We are now saying money is no longer considered speech and so we can go back to passing good government laws and this law may not be evaluated by the Supreme Court. They can do that. They can literally write it into the law. It's called court stripping or jurisdiction stri mm -hmm. stripping. It has been done. It has not been – as I said, it's not been done in a way that really got anybody's attention. Nor has it been tested in the courts. <laughs> well, it, it would provoke an instant constitutional crisis because yes. the court would say we have the right to evaluate this and, and the legislature would say, no, you don't. We just took that away from you. You know, Nobody knows where this is going to end up. But back in the 80s, the Reagan administration, the Reagan Justice Department hired a young lawyer, brought him in and said, we want to overturn – Brown versus Board and Roe v. Wade. We want to do it during the eight years of Ronald Reagan as president. These are, these are the promises that we made to our supporters, that these two Supreme Court decisions would be overturned. We're not going to be able to do it by packing the court. That's not going to work. And we're not going to be able to do it by, uh, by constitutional amendment. That takes too long. Find another way. And so this young lawyer spent uh, about a year 
going through literally all the way back to the founding of the Republic, reading Jefferson, reading about Marbury, all this other stuff. And he wrote this extraordinary 27-page memo saying basically what I just said. You know, We need to pass laws that say that it is legal to segregate and it is illegal to get an abortion. And the Supreme Court may not evaluate this. And it was submitted, and the Reagan administration looked at it and said, you know, okay, this, you know, there's going to be considerable blowback. Actually, in his memo, he says, here's the downside of doing this. They just ultimately never did it. His name was John Roberts. He's now the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Has so that's changed? one way around. Has he changed? Do you think that he has mellowed, or if, if that's even the right word? Do you think that he's ripened with age? Yeah, Roberts was a was a pretty severe partisan. I mean, when Bush v. Gore was happening in 2000, John Roberts went down to Florida and helped, I want to say Ken Starr, but I don't think it was, helped the guy who was you know the, the lead lawyer in that case before the Supreme Court, helped him draft his, his arguments, as did Brett Kavanaugh, because but Roberts in particular had clerked for Rehnquist. He knew Rehnquist. He knew him quite well. And Rehnquist was the chief justice. He was going to be making the decision about whether or not to take the case or he would have the loudest voice. So Robert, that's why Roberts got put on the court in part. I mean, this was George Bush saying to John Roberts, thanks for making me president or helping making me president. And, but I think that what's happened is that Roberts has um, taken his role in history seriously. I think he's still a, a conservative crank <laughs> from my point of view politically. But I think that he has become an institutionalist. Um, we'll see if, if Gorsuch and Kavanaugh get there. Um, I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, the idea of Roberts as the swing justice that doesn't make me sleep better at night, but it's nice to know that it's at least possible. Well, it's kind of what happened to Kennedy. Uh -huh. Kennedy was a Republican. Exactly. Yeah. And and the same thing, you know. He and in fact, there's a long history of justices. Uh, Owens in the in 1937 was the guy who broke the log, log jam that stopped uh, FDR's court packing scheme, Man, which is another way to solve this. Yeah, we didn't get into that, but you you talk about it in the book. This has been a fascinating discussion, and I hope. That you can come back again with your next book. I know you've written about 135 books, but uh, <laughs> in the last week, yeah. yes. <laughs> I've been speaking with Tom Hartman. Tom T H O M Hartman H A R T M A double N. The title of the book is "The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America," published by BK on sale October 1st, 2019. Tom, thanks so much for coming. Thank you so much for inviting me. You've been listening to Author Author, produced at the studios of All Classical KQAC FM in Portland. My name is Ed Goldberg. You can find these programs at our website, allclassical.org slash author. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back soon.